All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. And we got an OG of the podcasting space on the podcast today, Mr. Cody Rich from the Rich Outdoors. Thank you for taking the time, my friend. Oh, thanks for having me, Jay. Uh, uh, happy to be here. I don't know if I like, I don't know if I qualify as the OG. <laughs> you mean you got to be one of them, dude? Like you were, like how old, yeah, was- like when would the original start? So me, Jay, and uh, me, Jay, and uh, Brian Call all started within like two weeks of each other. And when I had the idea, I, I I think both Jay and Brian had been working on it. I didn't know. I didn't even know these guys. The when you say Jay, you mean Jay Scott? Yeah, Jay Scott. Yep, and, yep. And so it was like April of 2015, and I was like, you know what? I should start a hunting podcast. Blah blah blah. blah. I gave myself two weeks. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to have it up at Gable first. I, I told my wife, girlfriend at the time, and I did it. And I think we all launched like right at the same. So those three were like the first three that I know of. Maybe there was others, but as far as I know, it was like, yeah, we all launched about the same, like two week span. I mean, you get, you get some respect, dude. I actually like to give my, the fact that I'm a bow hunter. I, I give Brian a lot of credit for that. And to be honest, it was some of the early Hushin videos too, if I'm going to be like really transparent, because I'm in Canada and there's no real incentive to bow hunt here are oh, really not really like we get, we get elk in some areas from September 1st to 9th, which is kind of yeah. like, oh, okay. Weird. But I mean, yep. we could, can we just maybe, maybe tack <laughs> on a couple more weeks yeah. and then the only, there is a pretty cool whitetail season. That's like two weeks late December where other than that, everything in the province is, is any weapon. So it wasn't until I saw all the like rut elk hunting going on in the States that I was like, Oh, I got to get a bow. Um, <laughs> I have to. Still, it, too, so I know so many people from Canada that are like, Oh man, just, the elk hunting is not that great here. And I was like, there is good elk hunting. And like, there is decent time. It's very, it's, I, I would say very different though, in a lot of ways from what I understand. It's just not like the bugle fest, you know, no, Montana version of elk hunting. We, we don't have the data. I've done a lot of work on this. And in fact, I don't know if you've seen any of this floating around, but we just had this huge kind of like regulatory issue come up where they could be shutting down moose and caribou hunting for kind of like Dude. a third of the province. Like it's crazy. So I'm kind of like neck deep in a lot of this stuff right now. But I think our numbers for the entire province range between 40 and 60,000 head of elk for the entire kind of split up between two major regions. And there's like one or two other little like pockets, pockets. like Haida Gwaii has a couple hundred and Vancouver Island might have a thousand, but you basically have this big pocket of like 30 to 40 grand and another big pocket of like 20 to 30,000. And that's, that's it, man. And when you compare that against like, what is it? A quarter million in Colorado, yeah. like yeah, another nuts. hundred, 200,000 in places like Montana and Wyoming. Like they're just, we just don't have the population density. And I think people see the vast tracts of wilderness and think that supports hyper dense game populations. And it doesn't no. game populations thrive on these transition zones. And I think a lot of the way that the States have been more developed than rural wild Canada has, has actually led to greater populations. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, it doesn't hurt that like the, your guys are so far North that it changes a little bit. But. For sure. For sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think also the aggressive wildlife, like we never got as close to losing everything 
as you did. Mm -hmm. This is one of my big pet theories with British Columbia is it's fat and lazy because like I was in forestry for 15 years and we have some of the most archaic forestry practices in the world. Really? And no That's one, everyone thinks, oh, you got to be an industry. And it's like, no, because there's wood everywhere. So it's just like, man, whatever, we'll figure it out and fix it later. <laughs> and when you go to places like New Zealand or Finland or anywhere in like the Scandinavian or Europe where it's like, holy shit, man, we really got to protect this stuff. They're light years ahead of us. And I find with wildlife management, it's similar with the States because you were so close to losing it. Everybody knows what that feels like, or at least there's a type of a, a cultural memory of what that feels like. And so people are hyper vigilant and there's a bunch of money in the Pittman Robertson and the Dingle money and all this kind of stuff where Canada doesn't really have, you know, tags up here, 20 bucks. I can over yeah. the counter hunt for nine big game species. <laughs> like that's so I can buy a $40 tag for a stone sheep. Like, and I've trying to have a conversation with people like maybe we charge more money and there's this very old school. Nope. That's how we do things here. And it's like, well, yeah, but you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because like, well, on two full on two fronts, like the, the whole like we almost killed everything, you know, like you, your biggest mistakes are also your biggest lessons learned. Like, and right. you, you'll like pay attention to that. And like, that's true for everything, but it's like, yeah, maybe you're 100% right. That like, because we were so close to screwing this whole thing up that like now it's like very top of mind. Um, but I also think I, the second part of that is like, someone from would be so into uh, elk hunting when you have stone sheep, you know? Right. <laughs> it just feels like the grass is definitely just greener on the other side there. <laughs> no, it's a fair point. And I actually, uh, this year, so I'm <clears throat> I'm prepping now for a 14-day solo stone sheep hunt. Um, Hell first, yeah, good for First you, two weeks of August. And this will only be my first stone sheep hunt. And I felt like I got bit by the elk bug. And it took me five years and seven hunts to arrow my first elk solo 10,000 feet public land New Mexico like if you're gonna I, awesome. I, I had an image like a, a mental vision of like how I wanted to do be, it yeah. and it was like that's how I'm doing it and until I got that monkey off my back and being married you know what it's like young kids the wife oh, was cool hard. with like one or two big trips but the idea of doing like a big stone sheep trip in August and a big elk trip in September was like never even remotely we're getting there now, but right. once I got that elk off my back, um, that's when sheep really started to come on the radar. And now I, I think I'm in the same boat with sheep that I was an elk. Like I can't even think about, and it, like, there's all these ancillary hunts that I kind of have planned, but like the year revolves around this, this stone sheep did you, hunt for like, me. When you were like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get into hunting. Did you ever like a, to think that like that would be the case? Because I think a lot of people are this way. Like, you know, when you're just starting out and hunting um, and we could kind of circle this into like, you know, how long I've been doing it since I was, you know, I could walk literally. Uh, but it's like, everyone's at a different pro progression in their like career. Right. And so like the people that are like into sheep hunting tend to be people who have been doing it a very long time have kind of done all these things. And so people get into, you know, they start out, you know, would you call it adult onset hunter? I love that term. But it's yeah. like, you, you start out, you're like, Oh, I just want to hunt elk. Right. And like, that's all you want to do. And then you're like, okay, what's this sheep thing. Right. But when you're just starting out, you're like, I would never hunt sheep. Like that's just so arrogant. And so like, you know, you know, high upper class, like I just don't have any desire. You know, it's like, it's just funny how like you ebb and flow and you want to just keep pushing yourself and keep challenging yourself. And, you know, like, I think the appeal to people from the lower 48 to sheep, it's like, 
this thing we can't just do right and it's like even the money aspect has a big draw to it because you're like it's it's like it makes it almost untouchable right and so you're like not everyone gets to go do it and i think we romanticize it a little bit because it's like this this far off land and this like this creature that's like you know so hard to to reach to get you to, to hunt and all these things and it's like we, we almost like put it on a pedestal the way you know i grew up with elk literally in the backyard so it's like I, I laugh when people from, you know, back East or somewhere else are like, they put elk on a pedestal. I'm like, it's just an elk, you know, like, and it's like, yeah, everyone does that. The grass is always greener. Like, you know, there's always some future thing, but that's also the cool thing about hunting is like, there's always some destination to go to, to push farther and kind of keep going and, and to keep pushing your, both your skills and like your, your endurance and all these other things. So I, I don't know. That's what I love about hunting. I think another really good example of that for me is bear. Because it was one of those things, like funny story. My wife's a vegetarian and, um, <laughs> really, yeah, yeah. There's some, there's been an interesting <laughs> podcast or two. Um, and one of her things was when I first started hunting, because I, I, I did do a little bit of hunting with my old man's side of the family when I first grew up, a couple big moose hunts, but then out of it for years, got back into it in my mid thirties, early thirties. And her thing was, and we were together when I was starting to get back into it. She's like, that's fine. I totally get it. But like, just never kill a bear and like long story short there's like several rugs in the house now and like bear hunting is one of my favorite things but even for me I didn't have a desire or a path like it was an easy thing for me to agree to because I was like I don't yeah sure like whatever hunting was just a thing I, I almost even think the animal that I was going after was less important at first like it was just opportunity where I live uh down on the coast in Vancouver that really the easiest thing to hunt is coastal blacktail, Columbia blacktail. And, and so that's what I spent most of my day hunting doing during the, during the fall. But then once I started to branch out, you know, bear is one of those things that I found I wasn't interested in first. And now it's like an anchor of my year. Like I'd almost (laughs) rather do bear hunting than now it, it is. And this is another topic that's interesting for conversation. It doesn't feel the same. I think the lack of an antler, I don't get the same, like I love watching bears, but I could be just as happy to watch like a sow and a couple cubs walking around. And the fact that there's not that much difference between the the male and the female, and there's no big rack or like, I don't even know, or I don't know. It just feels different taking down a big mature bear than it does taking it down a big mature buck for some reason, but I still love it. And I do like, I've always asked myself about Africa. Like that's one thing that I've always said to people. The only other country that I've ever really been interested in hunting is New Zealand simply because it's kind of like Canada. Like I like my (laughs) rugged mountainous hunting, you know, the idea of going on a safari in Africa, I respect the dudes who do it and I appreciate the money that it puts into conservation, but like me personally, but I always wonder, I've only been like really dedicated for like the last seven or eight years. What's it going to be like 10, 15, 20 years from now? Like if we do that, what do they call it? Experience stretching. Like when you you get used to a certain sensation and you need to kind of like keep upping the ante so that it provides you the same kind of you know, sensory feedback. I, I I don't know. Maybe I will be over in Africa in, in 15 or 20 years, you know, hunting a lion with, with my bow, but and, it's an interesting it's, question you bring up. No. And it's, I mean, that whole experience stretching is, is, is very real thing. And I, I think to assume that that's not you is like to assume you're some special snowflake and not like every other human in the world. Um, and that's just naive. So like, 
all those things kind of ebb and flow and grow. And, and maybe there's a little like confirmation bias here when we're, we're like, Oh yeah, this is why I do it. Right. And I think there's a lot of that in hunting space, but you know, I had no desire to go to Africa until I read a few books. And then it was like, you know, in a particularly like reading some of Roosevelt's stories there. Um, and then there was a particular experience that, that popped up on like the, the availability list, if you will. Um, and it was like hunting mountain kudu and mountain kudu are essentially the elk of Africa. And so like, that was this experience. Like and once I like put this like tangential piece of like, Oh, this is the thing in Africa that I want to do. I don't really have any desire to go to Africa and sit on a water hole and shoot whatever comes in. No desire. Not like, and that's fine. If you go do it, that's cool. Um, but when it was like, okay, I want to go hunt specifically mountain kudu and, and, and that particular species on this particular hunt. And like, you know, just kind of like knowing some of the backstory and things like that, that all of a sudden is like, Oh, and I have this sneaking suspicion that once you get there and you do that thing, like it's like a, Oh wait, now what's this piece? Oh, what's this piece? And I think that's true for a lot of things. Like you, you could be like, well, I only want to hunt elk. And then you go do an elk hunt and you're like, you're looking up at those mule deer in the high mountains and you're like, "Ah, okay, well maybe I'll go see, you know, like you, you've experienced this thing that's like one degree off from the other thing. And like, you keep wanting to like dabble with that. And really the cool thing about hunting is like, it takes you to so many cool places, uh, new experiences and all these new things. Right. And so, um, and the same could be said, you know, going back to the bear thing, like I got into bear hunting and I love bear hunting. Like you said, I don't really get buck fever, if you will, about yes. bears. Yes. You know, it's like, it's just, a, it's, I love bear hunting, but for a totally different reason. You yeah. know, I'm not, I almost like at this point, I really do like finding old big bears. Yes. But at the end of the day, like going out with my friends is far more important. Whereas like when it comes to elk hunting, screw my friends. Like I'm going, like, I'm looking for the big thing. Like I have a, like this mission that I'm on. Right. And it's just very different. And like, it's so hard to explain to someone who's never even had any of those experiences to be like, this. I was trying to explain to somebody the other day that bear hunting is actually the least stressful hunting that I do. 100%. I don't put the same pressure on myself. And I think that's why I got to love it so much. It's just like, Oh, this is my fun hunt. Like I'm literally like, I probably go stay in a buddy's house and we might sit some farmer's fields and walk some logging roads and we're going to bullshit. We rarely go out before three in the afternoon because that's when the big (laughs) boys tend to come out. And it's like, it's a very enjoyable laid back. Maybe I get one, maybe I don't. It's BC. You know what I mean? We've got like 70,000 black bears. You probably (laughs) can go home with one if you really want to, Right. you know, like, and I like it for that because much like you with your elk, I put such, and I'm just now starting to, like I'm really trying to work on my presence and I'm just now starting to like, okay, how can I still have a good time? Stay focused on my goal at a level that I'm going to be able to go home and feel good about the effort that I put in, but also not run this train on myself mentally where like the whole time is just anxiety and stress. And it's like, and I get home and I'm like, what am I even doing? Like I'm tearing myself apart. Like there's, I'm just now finding that happy medium where I can still keep my foot on the gas, but also enjoy and be present in the experience itself. Cause we go to crazy cause we talk about experience stretching. I even think the way people hunt, it happens like everybody started out with a day hunt or maybe a, a you know, a truck camping hunt for two days. And then before you know it, you're doing 14 day solo hunts for stone sheep, getting dropped off by a plane and unpacking your raft. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. it just keeps going and we keep adding all these layers to it. Well, and that's to me, the point of it, not, not the entire point of it, but that's a huge piece of it. You know, like 
you, I catch flack for saying, you know, like, oh yeah, fill, filling the freezer is a byproduct. And it's not that like I'm some trophy hunter, but you know, I always said like, I'm an experienced hunter who the upside is filling the freezer. And I have no problem. Like I'll spend most of my September looking for that experience. There's an experience I'm pushing it. I'm like, I'm balancing that line of like anxiety driven mission accomplishing type endeavor versus like, yeah, I, I do want to enjoy this because it's just that one month a year that's so special to me. But I also know that like I can, I can pass all those opportunities and then come November, I'll go fill the freezer if I have to, you know, and right. like it's that balance um, that you can never explain to someone who doesn't understand this until they go and they're like, Oh man, this is, you know, way bigger than filling the freezer. This is way bigger than like, uh, you know, personal adventure, right? Like I look at like expeditions. Uh, so like these guys that, you know, climb the 14ers or whatever, like, yeah, that's great. And I, I, I understand that on a, on a very similar level. And I think like, you know, it's like this blend of like, yeah, I'm going to fill the freezer, but I'm also like climbing Everest in a way, you know, it's like my own personal Everest. And that always exceeds and keep pushing. Uh, and you have to like, keep stretching that, keep stretching that. And I would say like mountaineering is very similar in that like people keep pushing their limits, keep pushing their limits. And that that's how they grow as a person. Right. And like, they just keep push, pushing those limits. Well, hunting's very similar. And like, you can go to new places that are probably of equal, uh, like, how hard they're going to be to accomplish. But at the same time, like you tend to also be like, okay, can I stay out for two weeks? You know, can I do a solo hunt? Can I be out there by myself? You know? And that, I remember like one of my first, eh, first solo, like big, big trips. It was like a grizzly bear horseback solo wilderness type thing. It was like, I'd done all the pieces of it. And that one was the first one where like, I'm mixing all those pieces. So it was like this added layer of like, Oh, you know, and I really, appreciate not being scared when you go into a hunt, but like that same feeling of like, yes. what's going to happen, you know, like the, the unknown, right? Like we seek that of the unknown. I think that's a lot of what people are chasing when they go on their like experience chasing and, and doing these things. Cause there's something to be said. It's, it's enjoyable to go do hunts you've done before, but when you are going into the unknown, that is where you like start to stretch yourself. You start to feel that like, oh boy, here we go. Like what's going to happen? Like uh, that's the feeling that becomes addicting to a lot of people. I, I think so. And I think everybody, it's interesting when we're talking about like building hunt calendars, I'm always like every hunt fills a different type of, of need or, or plays a different role in, in mm -hmm. your year. If you're lucky enough to get out and have a, a couple. And I think everybody has a different vision for what hunting, you know, I, I got lots of buddies who like, it's a one time a year thing. They take their two weeks off in September if they're elk guys or two weeks off in October if they're moose guys and like that's their thing. And like when they come home, the, you know, the flannel jacket goes up and the gun goes back on the rack and they like don't really think about it for the rest right. of the year. And then there's, you know, guys like us who are like literally scheming like day and like how can I fit one more in or, or you know, when I'm trying to make money or get time off, like it all comes back to, to hunting, like some, in some way, shape or form. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And, you know, I used to compete in jujitsu. I used to compete in CrossFit. And like, I realize now in hindsight, like all the, I was searching for something. And I think in this modern world that we live in, especially us as men, and I, I don't want to be classified as sexist. I'm sure there's plays a role for women as well, but I'm a man. So I can only speak to a male experience. We had a role for hundreds of thousands and arguably millions of years. And we were like genetically 
engineered and constructed to have certain motivating factors and and find rewards, certain rewards satisfying. And even the way we produce neurotransmitters and how we react to stressful situations, like on a timeline, for 99.9% of it, it was like this one way. And then we have this like little tiny sliver over here at the other end that's the modern male experience. And we're trying to fit this like archaic Neanderthal, you know, mind and chemistry into this. (laughs) And it's like, that's why I think that's why we see a lot of like, you know, the mental health issues and the physical, you know, health and obesity and, you know, the anxiety and like all these things. And that's what I realized, like, I need these like primal challenges in my life for me to feel like a whole complete man. And that little bit of anxiety, like that's part of it. Like I need to go out there. I need to face that and be like, yeah, man, I I don't know. This is a little, even for me, this is pretty intense Mm -hmm. and go through that and come home on the other side of it. And then it's like for the next two or three months, I can go do like the normal thing again and be like, and have that kind of piece of me taken care of. But then it like builds back up and I need to go back out there and do that. And if I don't, I start to lose my shit. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the best husband. I'm not the right. best father. Like, and hunting for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you bring up mountaineering. I think other people have different ways depending on your personality. But for me, it's the combination of the intellectual challenge, the emotional challenge, the psychological challenge, the physical challenge. Like you can be as geeky about it or as like non-intellectual about it as you want. Like everybody can kind of define their own experience, but it's the one pursuit that for me brought everything together and it's, you know, in its purest kind of form. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. Like all of those things are like, that's what makes me like, they say fill your cup, but I don't feel like that's a good enough analogy for me. Um, it's like, this is what makes you a whole person. And it's yeah. funny. Cause I was reading recently reading, um, my life is an Indian and, um, you know, he's talking about just their lifestyle when this, this, the, white trapper guy that lived with these, um, the Blackfeet Indians for a number of years. And this lifestyle of like, yeah, they'd go on these hunts, right. And the, they would spend, you know, say three, four months, almost the entire summer, just like how living their free life or whatever. And I was like, man, it made me miss hunting so much because it was like, almost like carefree lifestyle, but like also the fear of the unknown and all of these things. And, and like you said, I think a lot of people search that out, whether it's jujitsu, like jujitsu and fitness, super popular. Right. And I think it's because we live in a world where like, we're just in concrete cubicles and like, we're just like stressed to the max and busy to the max and people need that outlet. Right. But like, that's their version of it. Not to say it's like a a false prophet, but it's like all those things of once you do like this extreme hunting thing, like all of those seem like, ah, they're cute, but like they just don't have all the aspects. They don't have the risk factors and all these like, uh, you know, unknowns, right? Like you go to the gym, you can work out, but there's not very much unknown (laughs) in that. And, you know, maybe in jujitsu, there's more unknowns, but like not nearly as much as like going into the wilderness alone and and trying to like survive or whatever. And I, you know, I, I don't want to like, Hey, this is the only way to do it. There's plenty of ways to do it. Right. Uh, but I think that's what it's gaining in popularity. So many people find that like, Oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And for me, one of the biggest pieces of that is like, I've always just found that like entrepreneurship and hunting, and maybe this is just the way I see the world. But to me, that they just seem to like be so in sync with each other. Like there's so many things that I learned from one and take to the other. And, and I've, for lack of a, better system. I've always been this like sprinter of a worker. Like I'm really good at like, I'll work my face off, 
but then I want to like take time. Right. And so I like never, never fit into like the regular school schedule. I never really fit into like the regular 40 hour a week schedule. Like I'd rather work one hour, 100 hours this week and then take a week off. You know, like I just, that's how I operate. And so like, for me, that's always why hunting has been so great. And it's like, yeah, I want to just work 11 months as hard as I can. And then like peace out for a month and like, just kind of have those experiences of like, being alone by myself on a mountain for multiple, multiple days to like think things through and whatnot. And it's just like, for me, it's always been a really good, you know, melting of the two of like, this is what I do. And like, this is what I do. And like, I, to me, it's like, I, I feel like it's helped my success, but I, I also realize that like, that just, you know, could be how I see the world because that is the the reality for me, you know? I, I think you're a hundred percent right, man. And I think that's a, that's a perfect segue. So before we, kind of bring the entrepreneurship into the hunting space, paint a picture for me. What's, what's early, you know, Cody rich hunter 1.0, like, <laughs> like where are we? You're going out with your old man. Like what, what is it? Uh, I started hunting far before I can even remember from what I'm told. Um, so yeah, my dad was big hunter was absolutely obsessed with elk. But we spent, I spent most of my time, uh, blacktail hunting in Oregon. Uh, and so I grew up on a, you know, a a small farm and, and so I had places, you know, go hike and do things. I, you know, a lot of kids grew up trapping. I didn't, I was never even introduced to it. Um, so my dad, you know, took me hunting and all these things. And, and so it was a big deal when we were nine to be able to go, uh, to elk camp for the first time. And so that was the first elk hunt I ever went on when I was nine, um, which had a huge impact. Cause like the, we, we went hunting and it was a very, very big deal. And I, I've talked about how I didn't get to go all the time. My dad would definitely leave me behind, which I actually appreciate because I would sit and wait for him to get home and be like, Oh, he's back. Did he get anything? And I think that actually drove more passion towards hunting than being out there. You know, I would get to go once or twice a week, maybe, you know, if dad went deer hunting, but I didn't get to go all the time. And I definitely didn't get to go to elk camp because elk camp was like, they went for a week, you know, and that's what they did. And so when the time I did get to go, it was like, Oh, this is it. This is the elk camp, right? Like like introduction to manhood, if you will. And, and so we go on opening morning and and I actually spotted some elk that my dad didn't see. I think I was just so short. I could see these elk bedded and I'll never forget being like, dad, right there. And he like looks at me and he like goes back and like bends down. It was like, I could see under the trees, this herd of elk bedded like a hundred yards away. And so dad's like, stay here. And like, I think he like looped around, like it's pretty fuzzy from my memory, but I remember he looped around and all of a sudden there's elk just rolling right by me at like 15 yards. Just heard elk just like, like piling through and you know, dad shoots one and like right before he shot this bull, big six point, I don't know how big, big six point stops 15 yards from me and is standing there. And I'm like, and then dad shoots a spike and the elk, this big bull turns and like, he just never went out in that opening, you know, like the way like he was smart, he didn't go back in there. And it was like, Oh, that was the coolest thing in the world, you know? And like, my dad kind of idolized elk as well. And so like elk was a big deal in our family and like uh, his group of friends. And so naturally it became a big thing for me and, and, you know, and like it just escalated from there and, and, you know, we got into archery. I grew up 
one of my dad's good friends owned an archery shop. So, you know, they'd go drink beer at the archery shop. It was a super small archery shop, uh, Boston, Oregon, for anyone who wants to like Google how big Boston is. And, and, uh, so Dean owned this shop and, you know, the guys would drink beer and <laughs> I'd shoot bows for hours and, you know, <clears throat> watch elk hunting videos on, on the TV. And, and so I guess that's like 1.0. <laughs> that's amazing, kinda, man. That's a, that's a crazy story. Um, I had a similar I felt the same way when I got asked to go to moose camp. Cause I think it was you know, when I was 12 and I was 13 and it was like, it was a big deal. Cause you were like going away with the men, you know what I mean? Right. And yeah. Right. Yeah. It was a pretty big deal. Um, so, so how does that transition? When do you, I mean, is it a pretty big force in your life the whole time you're, you're growing up? Like, is it a part of your identity right? Right. Or is there a period when you like push back and then come back to it? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, it was always a part of my identity and like I had outdoor life magazines, you know, stacked in my, my room and like categorized by article. And like, I was super into it. I mean, you know, I remember I would read bugle from cover to cover as a kid. And so it was always a part of it. And then you hit sports. And I remember being really frustrated, you know, small school and sports and everything. So it's like, I remember not getting go to L camp during sports. And that was always a big piece, you know, like, Oh man, that sucks. And then, um, at the same time, I was racing a lot of uh, four-wheelers and whatnot. And so, like, that became a big piece of it. And I remember being in my early 20s and being, like, kind of having to choose between racing and, uh, you know, hunting and, like, taking that seriously and crossing that bridge. And I, there was never a year I never hunted. Um, but it basically, I was – I would say more into racing for a certain period of time, but I would spend, you know, my time hunting. They never once got out of it. In fact, I remember quitting jobs just so I could basically take September and go hunting. <laughs> and uh, again, so like I would say, was it 2000? Think about this 2009. So I was 22 at the time. And then it was like, I, I actually broke my neck and it was like this, giant like okay like i need to like prioritize not racing and maybe prioritize just like spending more time in the woods and hunting and and getting to travel um i think at that time i had this thought of like a career in hunting but it was never like that big of a deal to me it was more like how do i create i was always in this mindset of like how do i create a business that allows me to go hunting whenever i want do whatever i want and so there was a you know a couple people that i looked up to and like they were able to go hunting all the time i was like yeah I want to hunt out of state. I want to do all these things. And I had been hunting like, uh, in Oregon and Idaho, which was like a big deal. I remember I must've been 17 or 18 when I first found out, you're like, Oh, you can hunt in two States. And I'm like, what? That's insane. You know? And like, so I went to, went to Idaho in I think 2008. So I was probably 21 first time and I killed a great six point in Idaho. And I was like, man, Idaho is the greatest. And, you know, and so like, it kind of just scaled from there and it was never really like, do you want to be in the hunting industry? it was more like, how do I just go hunting more? I, I didn't like right. zero desire to be like, Oh, you have to be this famous person. So you get to be on TV show. I actually never wanted that. It was just like, how do I go hunting more? Like, how do I get to do this all the time? And I mean, since I was a kid, like all I was trying to do was like figure out how to add more seasons. I remember being a little kid and like looking through the game synopsis and be like, Oh, if I get this tag and this tag, I can, I can hunt this many days. You know, like, it was just like, that's all it was trying to figure out how to hunt more. Uh, and so like naturally the progression so to circle back to like the hunting podcast, it was kind of like, I was at that point where in my first company, I didn't really want to be in the shooting industry. And I was like, I, I just want to 
bow hunt. Like I'd rather be at ATA than at SHOT Show. I remember having that distinct thought and I'd built this company and I was actually able to go hunting all over. Like I would spend a lot of time. I remember going to like, I had tags in New Mexico, Montana and Oregon. And like, and I would go back to, you know, Montana and like all these hunts when I had that company and yeah, it was like, didn't need to be in the hunting industry per se, but I was like, okay, I'll start a podcast to figure out what's next and kind of move in that direction. And as a way to like, okay, I just want to keep hunting more and do cooler hunts and, and keep going on all these experiences. And so like, it naturally just kind of like one day unfolded all this, you know, this direction. It wasn't even like, I wouldn't say planned in any way. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm going to create a, you know, hunting podcast to get famous so I can go hunting. It was like, no, I was doing it anyway. <laughs> and a lot of it, I mean, some of it was like the fact that like, I was at that point where I was like, I want to know more. I want to ask like certain people questions. I remember at the time when I started my podcast, which was like 2015. So imagine from 2009 to 2015, I was just hunting all over the country. I wasn't anybody. I wasn't anything. And, and what I was just, your first company that you had during this time period? Uh, it's called Powder River Cartridge. It was an action, a cowboy action ammunition company. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, during that, like what, five years or four years, it was just, six years, geez, six years. I was just hunting all over, kind of doing whatever I wanted, but I was like kind of maxed out on the, I maxed out my mentors for hunting. I pretty much maxed out every magazine article, every video. And it was like, what's next, you know? And so that was kind of like a big piece of the podcast was like, man, I want to like figure out how to do this better or get better. Right. And I just was like, there wasn't any resources at the time. Like there was hunting videos, and there was like outdoor life articles. And that was it, you know, and the outdoor life articles were like how to kill your biggest bull ever, you know, and it'd be like 500 word yeah, essay yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, and, anyway. and, and first generation hunting films, like primo stuff on ranches right. and stuff, but it, it is, you know, it's, and Hey, I, I think they deserve the credit where credit is due for right. what they did at the time, but let's be realistic here. It is not <laughs> like a, a thorough yeah. guide to how to actually, you know what I mean? For new guys to figure out how to kill bulls that yeah. don't cost, you know, exorbitant sums of money. To right. Right. Land. Yeah. So people coming into it now, it's like, man, there's all the resources. It's almost too much. <laughs> you, you, like mm-hmm. now my, my only issue is there's like almost a certain level of entitlement. Like I should just be able like my biggest piece of advice to guys. And I think one of the things that served me well, even when I got in is like, go prove how bad you want it first, then go ask for help. Cause I see these mm-hmm. guys on the local BC forum that like, Oh, I'm going out for my first sheep hunt. What do I do? And they just get flamed. And it's like, what do you do? <laughs> like, go beat the shit out of yourself for yeah. a year or two, then come back with your battle wounds. And then guys come out of the woodwork. Cause as soon as you feel like, oh yeah, this dude's willing to do the work. Then I find the old guys will send you messages and like everybody, I, I get more benefit out of my hunt films where I'm unsuccessful than when I'm successful. Cause I'll do this, you know, like I did this crazy winter solo goat hunt, which was, you know, half retarded. Yeah. It was pretty insane, man. I got my ass kicked and I did not kill a goat, but the amount of dudes who reached out and was like, next time you want to go kill a goat, just give me a call and I'll, I'll give you some tips. It was like, you know, and they're legit guys that don't really go out of their way and they're probably not even on social media. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. Anyways, I do think, I think there is a danger of almost an excess of like, Information can almost be too easy. I think we yeah, I, treat it differently when we have to work for it. I, well, not only to have to work for it. I do think that people get, and this is 
very true with elk hunting. People will consume and consume and consume and consume. And it's almost like you need to just decide and do. Yes. And, um, and I'd be curious what your thought is because you kind of just got that monkey off your back. But it's like people want to like, you know, like I have they get on my Patreon side and then they, they're part of Mark's e-scouting course or part of Corey's thing. And they're like, like, oh, it's like more, 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 yeah, which yeah, is yeah. good. But don't let it paralyze you. Like what's the what's the term like? Uh, paralysis by analysis. Like yes. you can sit there and just try to like take in every single thing and then never really do. Like, would you agree with that? Okay. So I just came up with this beautiful analogy the day. Cause I was at the, I was at the gym and there's people on the incline treadmill hanging on and like, <laughs> dude, like I want to hit them in the back of the head with a bat. Like I can't express <laughs> how angry that makes me, but we're in love with the illusion of progression. And so if I put the thing on a giant incline, I get to tell myself I'm getting somewhere with my endurance and cardio, but like, I hate to break it to you, Karen, you're not (laughs) like you're hanging on. And I kind of feel this like overindulging in information overload. It's the same reason why we see so many guys training physically, but like how many days did you spend in the field last year? Oh, I did my my 10 day elk hunt. It's like, okay, whoa. You know what I mean? Like nobody cares how fast you can pick up a sandbag or (laughs) how many overhead snatches you can do. Like, but I think we, we, we use these analogous or proxy activities because they're easier and they let us tell ourselves, and we get that warm fuzzy that like, oh, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm working and I'm getting better. I would argue if you are getting better, it's certainly not at, at, at the rate that you could be by burying yourself in the actual activity. Like the right. best way to get better at something is just to go do that thing. Don't worry about all the other little things. Just go do the thing as much as you physically can. And that's how you're going to, you're going to get better at it. You know, it's funny. Cause in the same way, like when I, when I was getting into entrepreneurship, I didn't go to college for any of this. And, and okay. I almost like, which is great because I felt like I, I had something to prove going back to like, you know, yep. so I had something to prove. So I had to read every piece of information, listen to every single podcast and do all these things. And then like, you just do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, which is, which is okay. It's good. But any great businessman or entrepreneur will tell you to take the 10 best books that are ever been written and just do those. Like, don't worry about all the other BS. And so in the same capacity, if I was trying to become the best sheep hunter in the world, I would take advice from like the two to three best sheep hunters I could get a hold of. And then I would, I would hone in on those like 10 pieces of the puzzle that I needed to execute. But instead of just like, okay, let's take elk hunting, for example. I do think like, like you said, you got to be in some shape, but the reality is, is like the mental toughness is far more. Yeah. There's something to be said for building mental toughness with physical exercise yep. and restraint. Hundred percent. But, but like, there's also like, hey, I don't care how how many sandbags you can throw, how far it doesn't really matter. Like, you need mental toughness more than you need physical toughness. Uh, but the number of days matters. But if you could just focus on like the pieces that you're gonna fail at, that's what you can't really know before you start. And what I mean by that is that like, when I was in the racing space, 
I would, you know, you go to practice, right? So go to practice on Wednesdays and, and you do and do and do. And then I would mentally rehearse every single mistake I was making yes. a thousand, thousand, thousand times. So I was like, before I go to bed and I still do this to this day of like things I need to work on. Right. Uh, or and maybe like the other night I was trying to fall asleep and I was like running through all the e-scouting spots I had just been through. And I was like, what I liked about each one, what I didn't like about each one. And I was like, you can, so you could physically do an exercise that helps you get better, right? Like shooting free throws, right? There's, there's a lot of case studies against the, or for this. Um, I forget the book. There is there a whole book on it, but you know, you can shoot your free throws and how many free throws you can shoot, but you could shoot 10,000 or 10 X more free throws in your mind. And that's actually helping you just as much. And so right. if you could take the same thing to hunting and say, like, for me, it was like, I would make a mistake on elk, right? And I would then replay that scenario 10 times over in my head, probably a hundred times over in my head to try to work through that kink so it wouldn't happen again, right? And so like, if you could just take, and I kind of did this, I, for the Patreons, I think it's it's on my YouTube actually now, is like the 10 lessons that I you know, wish I knew when I started hunting. If you just mastered those 10 lessons, like screw everything else, screw the rest of every podcast and my podcast, everything. And like, you just master those 10 pieces of the puzzle. You'd be fine. You'd be yeah. just great dandy fine. You'd be successful probably 90% rate. Right. And it's just like mastering those few things. But the problem is that it takes you like you experience with L because like it takes you so many years to master those things and you're going to make a lot of mistakes. So it's like, how yeah. do you make less mistakes? How do you go through this mental practice of not, not going to make that mistake maybe even twice. Right. And so like for you, I'd be super curious, like how you would go back and say like, okay, it took me five years. How would you shorten that learning curve? So this is, you a, don't know what you don't know. No, a hundred percent, man. And I know you're a big guy like myself into the Pareto principle, like the 80, 20 rule. And that's a lot of what I hear coming out of your when you say, you know, the 10 best things, like where can we get disproportionate return for the amount of time and energy that 100%. we're investing? And it's funny. I've thought about it a lot, man. And I am, I've never been great at anything. If I have one thing that I'm great at, it's learning how to do stuff. Like I'm a very systems-based thinker and I have the same process and I apply it to everything. Like if I went through the laundry list of things that I've done, I'm in a very fortunate individual. I've got to do a lot of different stuff, but I take a lot of pride on the fact that I'm a very efficient learner. And I've thought a lot about the thing and here's the one element of hunting. And I think this is also this piece that makes hunting different than so much else. I don't care how perfect you are and I'm just going to put a number to it. There's still 10% of this that's completely out of your control. Oh yeah. 100%. And so part of it is almost... Here's one of the things I wish I'd have been a little easier on myself at first. Like my wife had to have a couple of discussions with me. Like I used to come home and I was like, it was bad. Like I was angry for like a month after, after getting home. And she was just like, you can't do this, man. You're like, I'm giving you two weeks. And then you come home like a dick. Like you can't. And I was like, she's right. She's, she's a hundred percent right. So I think, but in the same breath, like, I love what I hear you're saying because I, am a strong believer that you can't run from failure. I embrace failure. I love that copper taste in the back of my throat that just, I hate my, and it's just like, I feed on that all year. Like every year when I got home from a failed elk hunt, like that's all I would think about all year. And, you know, I think maybe I did do a little bit of that, you know, the over 
searching. Like if I think in the first five years, I literally hunted elk in Haida Gwaii, a chain of islands off the coast of British Columbia, Montana, Wyoming, mainland British Columbia. So yeah, and I think I think those are the only places. And I went on seven hunts. And I and I did one guided hunt for elk that was like a nightmare. Like I literally threatened to throw a guide off a cliff. Like it was it was bad. It was bad. Um and it's and it's funny. I you know, it's surprising I don't have a good answer for that at all. Like what what I would do differently. The funny thing is though, for me, that was what I needed. Because like I don't tend to lose. And I don't say that out of arrogance. I say that out of discipline. Like I tend to be very good at outlining exactly what it is I need to succeed and then executing it in a very systematic way and sacrificing whatever is necessary to to get to my goal. And sometimes to the detriment of the people that I care about and the things around me. And that's one of my things that I'm working on. You know what I'm saying? Um, Off topic, but I'm like three months out from a bodybuilding competition right now. And if you talk to my wife, like it's not a pleasant guy to live (laughs) with at all. But it's like, that's the thing right now. And it's like nothing else. So anyways, I'm getting off topic, but I needed to get my ass kicked because, and, and I'm not one of those like everything happens for a reasons guy. I think that's a bit of a, a bit of a cop out, but I can tell you this, the, the story that I had was the story that I needed because I got more from that as a hunter and as a man than I would have got going to, like, I can remember my second year hunting elk. I was in Wyoming and, um, just, um, like a general season tag, um, I think I had like one, one preference point or maybe two, cause I bought that one at the end of the first year and then went into the draw with the one I got from the second year or however that works. And we're coming, and I had a buddy with me first kind of real backcountry hunt and we're coming over the ridge and like, there he is, man, on the far side with like nine cows, just like monster six, seven point break out the spot. I'm like, Oh my God. And and my buddy starts going and it's maybe like four in the afternoon. And he's probably like, you know what? We should just, we should go we'll be responsible. We'll go to camp. They're going to bed and we'll go get him in the morning. And he tells me the next day that his knee was blown out and he just didn't, he couldn't handle the hike over there. And I, <laughs> I almost killed him. I was like, <laughs> because what happened was we woke up at four o'clock in the morning and we hiked all the way up that mountain. And when that sun came up, man, those elk were gone. Yeah. Around 10 o'clock in the morning on the other side of the mountain. You know what I mean? Somebody ah. shot. And it was like, I wanted to puke, man. I wanted to puke. But what was funny is I think back on that, because that was the only real, like real opportunity I had between starting to hunting elk and putting an arrow in an elk. Like there wasn't even like encounters, man. Like it was bad. <laughs> it was bad. And I think about who I would have been as a man and what my ego or like self image would have been as a hunter. And I like this outcome better than that outcome. Cause I think I would have taken, I think that was just dumb luck that that elk happened to be on that hill. When we came over the Ridge, I don't really take any responsibility for it. And I think I would have been confused and took responsibility for that success when it was just really like right place, right time. So I don't know, man, long winded, long winded way, but 
I'm glad, you know, I'm glad it turned out the way it did because this is one of my frustrations these days. Like this whole like celebrity, you know, like, and I don't mean to be like calling people out or whatever, but (laughs) there's these guys that start hunting and like six months later get taken by like a Dudley or somebody else to some ranch in Utah and they, they smoke a six point and it's like, that's not what this is. You're confused. You're missing the whole, like you just robbed from them such an opportunity. And it's like that dead elk is not what this is about, man. It was about figuring it all out and the failure and the, the pain and the stuff. And then like, and then, and so that really frustrates me because it, yeah, but it's, it's interesting like, because like humans by nature are always looking for the shortcut, right? Like 100%, to do our own detriment. 100%. Like this is what we've done for hundreds of years. Like, like we yeah. look for the easiest path and that's what we're good at, right? Um, all the while, like the, the hard path is always the more, you know, impactful. Um, it's so ironic, you know, and I always laugh because my sister, um, ironically, like grew up in a hunting family. My sister was like, save every animal. Um, it's almost comical uh, to the point where like I'd be, going out the backyard to hunt deer and she'd be like banging pots and pans and stuff and so like very not anti-hunting but was like don't save bambi needless to say she eventually wanted to pick up hunting and it was like <laughs> huh okay okay you know and so i was pretty hard on my sister like oh, i'm not taking you or like i'd take her once or twice and so it got to this point where like she had a lot of failures a lot of failures and i would just laugh you know like ah, ha, ha. and there was one point where one of the early hunts we did, I, I don't even remember what it was, but we went on this uh, horseback hunt together and, and we were way back in there and I, I made her sit on water holes and like, just put her through the ringer. You know, I was like, I'm going over here. You sit over here. And to the point where I'm like, okay, let's go see if we can call it a bull and didn't think much was going to happen, but needless to say, it erupted into sheer chaos with a giant bull come flying in. Like I'm pushing her one way to get like, this bull is like within range right now. Like give it her own knock, like sit like running the other way. Like, you know, trying to get this bull to go right by her and a sheer, sheer chaos. And she literally drew back her bow. Couldn't remember if she looked through her peep or not. Cause it was like 12 <laughs> yards and missed this bull by a mile at like 12 oh. yards. Uh, I think she drew back and thought her peep had fallen out or something. And so like, just like, you know, tried yeah. to eyeball it at 10 yards and did not. Uh, and so she was like, so distraught. Like this was her one chance. Like, you know, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. this was it. This was like, and I'm just laughing. Like, yeah, you'll appreciate it more. And she hated me that whole trip because I was like, no, this is way better. <laughs> Cause if you get a 350 bull on day one, like it, it just, it's all wrong, right? Like yep. you can't go about that that way. No. And uh, God, she was pissed at me. But I think in the long haul, it's like, yeah, you have to have those, you know, you have to earn all of that. Even though like the entire point of my podcast, you know, when I started out was like tips and tactics and yeah, man. How, to, how to short the, short the learning curve, right? Like yep. that, that's what I was all about. Like, you know, and all these things. And like you said, like you, sometimes you can't short the learning curve. You're going to learn from your mistakes. I do think that, there's a lot of impact in truly learning from your mistakes. That's where most people go wrong is they like, they study what to do, but they never study what they did. And they'll spend their entire life being like, what's the, what's the better way to do it? What's a better way to do it? What's a better way to do it? 
well, I am so focused on beating, like I say this not in a negative way, but beating myself up over the mistakes I made. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like, here's how I would have done that differently. Here's another way to do that differently. Here's another way to do that differently. Here's where I should have done that. I was like, you know, and like almost to a fault where I beat myself up to where it's like, okay, I try not to make that mistake twice. Um, you know, most people will, will go through and just like, just try to find new information. Right. And they're just always seeking, 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 seeking. And, you know, they just, they'll do that forever. They're always looking for that shortcut when, you know, like facing the hard work and facing the mistakes is generally a better way. I don't know if it's better, but you know, the, the way to success. hundred percent. Okay. Two things I'm realizing now, as you're talking where I could have improved, I never found a mentor. A, I'm like hardcore introverted to the point of social anxiety. And so like the idea of like actually going out and meeting people and talking to them and asking them for help is like the last thing in the world I want to do. But it's what I tell other people to do. And what I should have, what I should have done in hindsight is try to join some type of community. You know, the Wild Sheep Society of BC is really big here. That wouldn't have helped with elk per se, but you, you understand what I'm saying. I should right, have right. got involved face to face with some type of community. And I should have, right from the get-go, it was like, I needed to shoot an elk as fast as possible. And maybe if I had been open to like, hey, could I tag along on a hunt? I don't, I won't even bring a tag. I just want to like learn from you guys. And maybe if I'd have been more open to like putting in a season or two as a participant, I would have actually probably shot an elk myself quicker. And I think having this, like, I need to figure out myself and I have to do it myself probably held me back. That, that was probably the one thing that, and I mean, it was satisfying. Like I feel good about what I did, but I have these weird lines in hunting. Like this type of stuff is okay for me. And this type of stuff is not okay. And (laughs) I'm, I'm proud of myself when I do this, but like, if I was to go do this, I'm not. So I think those are all like, you know, imaginary lines. Um, anyways, I think if you like simplify it to its most basic concept, which is usually the best way to look at something is you say, okay, realistically, like, what do you need to do to kill an elk? Well, you need to be able to find elk. Well, that could take years to figure out like, what is, you know, they always say buck, bucky, this looks bucky or this looks elky. That could take years to figure out gut intuition, or you could, or you could go with someone, right? And even if you're not hunting elk, like you could go with someone and figure out how to find elk. Also violence of action and finding elk patience, like to end all be all when, when, before you make a decision, like those are two things like it takes you years to figure out. Like everyone's like tiptoeing around the woods. Like they're going to find an elk around every tree, but it's like, no, no, no. Like I'm covering a hundred miles, like as yes. fast as humanly possible because I have to find elk in order to hunt them. And then I can be stupidly patient. Right. And yeah. that's the thing is like everyone else is the inverse. They're like tiptoeing around the woods and then they see an elk and they like walk right up to it. You know, it's like, Oh, it's the backwards version of that. So basically we have to find elk we have to get close to elk and then the the last thing this is what really takes years is like the red zone right so in football it's like you're within the 30 yard uh, of of the end zone that's the red zone and like you need so much nuance about reading the animal's behavior when to draw when not to draw when to have violence of action and when to wait for that shot like that's like it takes so much gut intuition and this is why you know it takes five years to kill an elk because you only get within the red zone, like maybe once a year, if you're lucky Mm -hmm. and then you, you screw that up. But the reality is is like, man, it takes a lot to figure out like, Oh, I you're like, Oh, I can just come to full draw and walk out in the wide open and and shoot him. Like, I didn't know I could do that. Right. And like, so being with someone 
if you were to ever go with someone who has 20 years of experience, you'd find out that they're a ridiculously aggressive when it comes to finding elk. They're extremely patient before they make a move. And then they have a just nuance that you can't describe when they get in the red zone. Like most of like, I don't know, I guess it's, I I would say most are pretty aggressive in the red zone. But then I know people that are like, you just have to know when like that shot's going to present itself and be patient. Right. And so like, you can't teach it. You can't teach gut intuition. Um, that's really hard to do, you know? So those are like the three things you need to master. And I hear so many people that are just like, Oh, what the wind, the wind, this, the wind, that, or like whatever. And it's like, man, you, you romanticize the wind way too much. Like thermals, all that stuff. Like I'll figure that out later. Like for the right. most part, I got to find out before I worry about which way the wind's blowing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that sounds counterintuitive. And most people are like, yeah, you got only hunt with the wind in your face. I'm like, yeah, as a rough rule of thumb, but I'm in the mountains. It's blowing in every direction. So let yeah. me find some elk and then we'll worry about what the wind's doing or the thermals. Like I need to find these things first. Like, and that's, I mean, those like when you boil it down to that basic, I don't want to make it sound easy, but I think people just romanticize other things and like worry about the nuance. Right. And this is where like the paralysis of analysis, you could sit there and, and like, Oh God, I got to worry about the wind. Like that's so important. Well, I got to worry about, you know, uh, North facing slopes. You're like, I found more elk on non-North facing slopes than I did. You know? And so like all these like nuances that, like you said, if you could just go with someone who's been doing it for 20 years, you'd be like, aha, that aha moment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. I remember the season. It was that season in Wyoming that I learned the go find the elk before you hunt an elk, because especially coming from blacktail where like still hunting is all we do in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And you literally, from the time you leave the truck and you're not really yeah. going to know one way or another, if they're around or not, you're still right. hunting all day through like drizzly rainforest. And like, that's how you hunt blacktail. So I'm like, okay, that's how I'm going to hunt elk. And then it's like, you, you, you underestimate the, like the, you know, degree of sign these bastards leave around. Like, you know, when you're an elk and that's my biggest tip to people. It's like, that's my real breakthrough was in that Wyoming was the last time I did a long-term backcountry elk hunt. Everything is bivy style. Now it's like in for two, three days out to the truck in for two, three days out to the truck. And I'm just cut. Everything is on my back and I'm just covering ground like 10, 15, 20 miles a day until I find the sign. And it's like, okay, if I find it on day three and I'm out of food, I'll go get more food. Like that's a problem that can be solved. But the idea is just these big loops from the truck and then driving the truck to the next trailhead and doing these big loops just as fast and hard as possible until you get in the mix. And then it's like, you flick that switch and it's like, okay, now we're out of scouting mode and we're into hunting mode. And like, I, I remember that to the day, man, it was like, we were driving home from that Wyoming hunt. And I'm like, we just burned 10 days. Do you know what I mean? Because like we went into this like hell and gone. And in retrospect, by the end of the days, we'd seen nothing like anybody who knew what they were doing would have walked all the way in there, took like one look around and been like, okay, we're going back to the truck. (laughs) Like, dude, I mean, I've been though, like been 15 miles deep and like, you're like, ah, it took a full day to get here. Like, uh, I'll just stick around. Like, like, you know, in your gut that you should go find somewhere else, you know, that's why I really hate, 
Oh, hate, hate. Like, it's just got to be the right spot. You'd have to scout it before season and know for me to like. Or been okay, there before. It, like, right. if I've right. got a couple spots now in Wyoming where I've been once or twice that it's like it, it, next time I pull a tag, it's like, yeah, I'll go in there for six, seven days. I've right. seen the sign like and they're so far back in like that. I feel like you're in the 80 to 90 percent confidence kind of mm-hmm. range that it's like those guys are going to be there again. It might take right. me a couple days to find them, but but they'll be in there for sure. Yeah. And I mean, that's just like a different kind of hunting too. Is like, you know, I spent a lot of time just hunting, you know, trucks and, you know, like you said, like little loops out of the trucks, even day yep. hunting. Like I think there's a lot to be said for what you can learn doing that because you're, you know, you're getting more, more at bats. Right. And you can screw 100%. this up. You know, if I go in 15 miles and there's like one to two, you know, maybe it's like one group of elk that's made up of three herds. I can only screw that up so many times before I'm hiking my happy ass 15 miles back out of there and starting over. And like, that's a time suck. Right. And so like, you just a different, like you got to slow play that one a little bit. Whereas like when you're young and like, you know, I, I see a lot of these adult onset hunters that want to do the backcountry thing, which is great. But at the same time, it's like, you just don't have the skills yet. Right. Yeah. You're going to go up and you're going to screw that up. And then you're going to like, Oh, now I got to hike back out. And you're like, so you kill like two days just trying to do this back and forth shuffle thing. Whereas like, if you were just a day hunt out of the truck, like you're going to yep, go screw it up. And then you could drive around the mountain and go screw that one up and then drive around, you know, and like go and constantly be screwing that up. And so it's like, I, when I was, I learned a lot hunting in Idaho and it was like, I didn't know the area and I, I would, man, I'd scout nonstop, like all day, all night, like all day I'm looking for sign and water holes all night. I'm bugling. Like, I'm just going like a madman um, and like just chugging five out energies and like just never sleeping. And like, I, but I had to have so many herds of elk because like I would screw it up. Then I'd yep, find the next yep. one screwed up, you know? And like, and that's just the way it was. And then like the more backcountry you got, I had that same mentality, but it was like, then I'd screwed up like, Oh, this really sucks. Like yeah. I can't even walk anywhere. And so then it became like, okay, like let's slow it down. Like let's make every attack count. Right. And then it's like, you can, really like methodical about the situation, like waiting for the right situation. But, um, but when you're young and you know, like you gotta, yeah, screw it up a few times. hundred percent, man. Okay. I want to switch gears back a bit to the entrepreneurial thing. Um, because we could go on about this all day and I probably selfishly would rather talk about this because I know more about starting and running businesses than I do about hunting out. Um, how did you know you were an entrepreneur? Like, was there, was there one job you had, or was this a sense you had that, that you were just not a good employee or was there, was there a particular (laughs) moment? Like, how did you know, or did you have to go start something and figure it out? Like, oh, this is what I meant to do. Um, I didn't, I didn't know that entrepreneur was a thing. Um, but I also never really had a job. So like, that was probably the first indication that like, oh wait, you know, I remember, yeah, I think I've only had one technical job ever um other than like you know working on the farm or working for neighbors farms and things like that um i I don't know that i ever knew i knew that i wanted like from a very early age i knew that i wanted to hunt and i i I thought the best way to get there was if i owned a business i had a few people that were like they were business owners and i'm like yeah they didn't have to go to school like you know i had yep. some i had one that was like a dropped out of high school and he had a very very successful business i was like that guy's winning so it was just more of like a, a product of my surroundings to say okay this is what i want out of life like how do i go get that and i've from a very i don't know if it's because i started working very young but like i've always had this mindset of like Oh, I want something like, I don't know, new four wheeler. Okay. I have to go make money to do it. And so I was like, Oh, want elk hunt. 
how do I make money for that? Okay. Want house. How do I make money for that? And like, I'm fairly surrounded by a lot of those people, but like, I, I don't know. It was like, Oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. You know, like it was literally like mostly I want to go hunting a lot. <laughs> what can you do to do that? Oh, well, and it was like, you just don't know what's, a, what's available. And I, I've talked about this on my, my podcast, but it's like, you know, at the time I thought, okay, I can either take over the farm uh, or become a firefighter. I was like, well, a firefighter could get way more time off to go hunting. So I'll do that. You know? And I was like, that was as simple as it was. And then it was like, Oh wait, there's people that just make money and they get to go hunting. I was like, okay, I'll do that. You know, I was like, <laughs> that was kind of the nature of it. And then I didn't go to college. And I think I had a lot of guilt about that or like, uh, interestingly enough, like, I don't want to say shame, but it's like, I was like, I felt like I was behind the curveball. And so like, I just wanted to consume everything. So I started like down this entrepreneur rabbit hole and I was like, ah, burning the ships, eh? And I'll, yeah. I'll do this until I figure it out. Cause I knew like I, I ran into some people that were like, that nomadic lifestyle, right? They, they were on the beach in Bali and, and had businesses. And I was just like, yeah, I want to do that, but, uh, I want to be in the mountains and hunting. And so essentially I was like all in on this concept. I just didn't know how. And so I just figured I'd read everything that there ever was, you know, and I'd figure it out and I'd go until I figured it out. And I, essentially that's kind of how I went down that rabbit hole and it created someone, I feel like that's very unique. Like I have like uh, zero education on like formal background of running businesses. Everything is like trial and error, <laughs> but I also had businesses that I was always testing things. And so I'd read books right. and like, like see if this worked, didn't work, whatever. And, and, you know, and then like I joined every mentorship group I could, but you know, like I was about an hour and a half South of Portland, Oregon. And so all these like entrepreneurs are in Portland, Oregon, were, let's just say very different than I was. You know? <laughs> so like, I didn't, I was just this weird anomaly from where I'm from. I was like, yeah, here's what I want to do. And everyone's like, what are you doing? Like, that's weird. You know? And, and so I just stuck with it for a lot of years and that's how I ended up, I don't know, in the entrepreneur game, if that answers your question, kind of long-winded answer. No, it does. So now walk me through the chronology of, of the businesses. Okay. So I actually went to school to be uh, fire science. Um, I just finished that. I was going to go get my paramedic. And one of my mentors uh, still to this day was like, Hey, do you want to do this, this gig uh, in North Carolina? And this gig was an EMT gig. And so I did it. And he's like, Hey, do you want to blow stuff up for a living? So I was like, yes. Uh, flew to Orlando, got into special effects. So essentially long story short is I, I went and worked for this mentor for the next six years doing special effects, okay. um, which led us into my first company. And so we had this side business and that's about the time I came into like the four hour work week stuff and, and was really kind of diving into like the entrepreneur things. So I was like, yeah, internet businesses. I want to do that. So I started building that company and, and slowly, long story short, bought that from the owner. Um, and that's how I built my first business was like, I just have stumbled into it, you know, and it was, it was classic, like entrepreneur. It's like the only thing, you know, or like the thing that's available, you try to like morph into what you want. Um, and so like, I tried to turn that business into, I did it turned it into like an internet type business. Right. And that's how I got into the internet marketing world. Um, and then from there it was like, okay, I started the podcast just to figure out what was next. Uh, the podcast, I knew like, I, I didn't, didn't think of it as a business. It was more like a networking tool to kind of grow into the next thing. I launched Backcountry Fuel, um, which is, I still have today. And then it was like, okay, now it's like I've worked myself out of that company to some degree. I, you know, 
I don't know, kind of advisor there, I guess. <laughs> I'm still there. I work kind of about one day a week. Uh, and and now it's like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? And it's kind of a progression. To me, it's like, I what started as like, how do I take September off has turned into like building businesses that are self-sustaining, which is like, I never really, that wasn't the end goal, but it's a natural progression of you want to take September off. Yeah. And so then when do we, when do you come to the conclusion that you want to, I mean, <clears throat> create some type of curriculum or, you know, at the beginning, I think even before I hit record, I talked about it. You're kind of in this meta entrepreneurial phase where yeah. it's, it's, there's this kind of added dimension of supporting other individuals in their desire to do the same thing that you did. So this may sound woo woo, but I think you'll appreciate it. So uh, probably a year and a half ago, like I was kind of burnt out on doing a hunting podcast and trying to figure out what was next. And I came across this book called the Ika guy. Um, and it's like a Venn diagram of like meaning and purpose and all this. And I had been like toying around this like concept of like purpose and like, what's, what's the end goal, right? Like at all these things. And so that was when I started doing more entrepreneur podcast. I, I really struggled. I was like, well, I have a hunting podcast. I can't just like post entrepreneur stuff. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? Why not? Like it's, if it doesn't grow with me, it'll die. Like that's a hundred percent true. And I think that's even true in businesses. If it doesn't grow with you, it'll die. Like, because you won't feed it. And so I started doing that and I actually got good feedback. I was like, okay, cool. Like maybe there's this thing here. And then it's like, the more I did it, I was like, no, this is, this is who I want to be. And if, yep. if people don't follow, that's fine, but this is who I want to be. I'll pick up new people. And I think that's good advice because you can easily get caught in this trap of being what you think other people want you to be. Even when you're like, you think you're doing you, you're, you're doing the thing. Right. But you tend to like fall into like, what is popular or what's going to get downloads or whatever. And that was the trap of like the podcast, right? Like the podcast had become its own business. Right. And it was like this pretty successful business. And I was like, you can't change that. And right. it feels like you're like, Oh, well I have expectations. I have sponsorships. I have all these things. It was like, no, like I, I, once I looked at that from a 30,000 foot view, it was like, no, that's ridiculous. I don't really care if it works or not. It doesn't matter. Um, and so I'll just keep changing. And so that pivoted. And then I was like, okay, the real answer is that like, I was like, okay, well I could create this course to fund backcountry fuel. That way I could just step, step away from it. Right. And that was kind of the start of it. And I was like, okay, let's, let's do this cohort version of a course. Like I want to teach this in person to figure out like what's working, what's resonating, all these things. And I did that and it was really good and people loved it. And it was like, it just still wasn't good enough for me. And, and like, in doing it and in teaching people, I realized that like, I'm like, there's a lot more to this. Like I want to be that support group for everything I didn't have. Right. Like, and I'm like, this is fun. And a little bit of backstory is like, I've been helping businesses for years and years and years. And my wife, it drives my wife crazy. She's like, you need to charge for consulting or something. Cause I'll be up till midnight working with someone and I enjoy it. It's like what I want to do is so I'm like, I enjoy it. I, I, it'll be something someday. I don't know like where I'm going with all of this. Like, but I, I do it. I was like, I'm learning as much by teaching other people what I would do or like formulating my thoughts in, in the same way that anyone who teaches learns as much. Right. So long story short is like, I was like, okay, what's, what's this could be like, how, what's the best resource in the world for me 10 years ago, me 15 years ago. And when I started looking at that from that perspective, it was like, okay, 
how do I want to build this out? And so it was never like this grandiose plan. And usually nothing that I do is it's like, okay, here's what looks interesting. Like, let's just keep dabbling with it until it morphs into something. Um, and one of my buddies texted me like two days ago and he's like, you know, I really appreciate that you'll like launch something before it's what I would consider ready. And I was like, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that because I have no fear of failure, like for first, first off. But I also am really good at like building along the way. Like I'd rather launch something and then like morph it into like, whereas if, if I would have spent, like I put zero effort into doing a course before I announced I would do a course, I said, okay, is there anybody that's interested? Yeah. Okay. Like I'll, I'll take 25 if there is that many. And so boom, we sold that out. And I was like, okay, now I have to create the course. So I had a month, I created the course, but I didn't have to put a ton. If I would have like, okay, this is my next thing. I would have put a year into building that. Whereas like, I was just kind of like, Hey, let's see where it goes and keep morphing it, keep morphing it. So what morph from where, what started is like just a, a course morphed into a community, which is now morphing into like, like you said, I don't know if it's going to be an incubator or what it's going to be. Um, but that's what I'm interested in. So that's what I'm going to do. Like, there's no grandiose plan. Like I just, maybe I have ADHD. So I like build a business. And I'm like, okay, what's next? Oh, that looks interesting. Let's go over there. And I, I try in the same way. Like, I'm like, don't overthink elk hunting. I'm like, don't overthink entrepreneurship. Just do yeah. and kind of morph and, and yeah. what, what you're interested in. That's where your, your passion will be. Right. Like if I'm interested in building businesses and creating a community around that, like that's where my passion is going to be far more than me teaching elk hunting, so to speak. Have you read the lean startup? Yeah. 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 I mean, that that's what you're describing right. is like the concept of an MVP. And if you look at, so I'm a business consultant and a lot of stuff that I work with clients on is, you know, different pricing strategy, product development, communication, marketing, all that kind of stuff. And the old school way of doing things, I like to say it was like the movies. And in the movies, you had a hundred million dollar budget and you had this big grandiose vision <laughs> and you, you built a movie and no one saw the movie until the movie was done. And maybe the movie was great. Maybe the movie was shit. Doesn't matter. This is the movie we're making. And this is the movie you're buying. Right, if you go to right. it, Dude, the, that's yeah, a hundred percent. Right. And so the new paradigm I call the video game and in the video game, you're going to pay just to participate in the beta. <laughs> so they're going to give you a half finished version that you're going to buy. And then you're going to give them the feedback they need to make it good. And you're going to pay them in order to participate in making their product better, which they will then sell to you again. And the whole concept of an MVP. And this is where I think some people miss the mark. Cause some people think it's the smallest or cheapest version of a thing that you can get to market. And I put one kind of, caveat on that is that it has to represent the essence of what it is that you're, because if it doesn't, like for me with my podcast, an MVP for me was one year once per week. Cause I originally got asked to do this on another network. I did one episode and personalities kind of clashed. I'm a little polarizing, whatever, no, no harm, no foul. But they said, whatever you want, man, if you want to do one a month, that's fine. Or one every couple weeks, you know, figure it out. And I said to myself, that's not an adequate test because the MVP is, is inadequate. I won't know if I failed because the content was garbage or for a variety of other variables that I'm not going to understand because my MVP wasn't thorough enough. So I defined this MVP to be, and at the end of a year after doing it, like I, I'm still not monetized in any way, shape or form. But for me, that's like not even on the radar of things that matter to me. The metrics that did matter to me though, at the end of one year, were like hyper clear. You keep 
going. In fact, doubled down and threw in a second episode just two months ago. Um, And so I, I really appreciate what you're saying because too many people allow that perfectionism and that fear of going to market, to use the business term, with a product that's not 100%, when it's like, that's not even in the top three questions you should be asking yourself right now. <laughs> it's 100%. Like, yeah, we're going to get there. And yes, we will refine it. And yes, we will turn it in. But like, our society just doesn't even operate like that anymore. People don't like, you know, I used to be an audio engineer and a music producer. And I was a DJ and a bunch of other stuff. And we actually, when we started producing music in the digital era, we would actually put, there's like plugins you can use to put imperfections back into music. Right. Because when you make music on a computer, it sounds too clean. The human ear doesn't like it because we're used Mm -hmm. to things coming through tubes and wires and there's distortion and hum and like warmth. And I think business and I think podcast, I think too clean, too pristine and too digital rubs people the wrong way. And, and so while you're fighting this for, for this perfection, even if you do nail the perfection, that's not what people want anyways. They want authentic. They want a little rough around the edges. They want, you know, real, yeah, real and a little raw. And, and I think, right. and I think, and, and, and when you nail that, that's when you start to like have that confidence to like, let's just make it and throw it out there. If it works, it's going to work. And if it doesn't, okay, then I, va- I learned a valuable lesson. But just like with the reps, with the elk, if you're waiting 10 years to plan the perfect backcountry hunt. That's silly, right? It's the same concept. It's the exact same concept. You're never going to learn how to hunt elk. It's just to go get in the truck, throw your bow in the back and just start walking around in the woods. You're better off doing that than nothing at all. Right. And like when you get into product-based businesses, like MVPs are a little bit more difficult, right? Because people are like, oh, yes. you just can't ship anything, right? And it's like, well, you're right. But uh, let's hypothetically say I was building a backpack company, right? That, um, I don't have to start where Stone Glacier is today. I don't have to have no. like, okay, we got to figure out what pants we're going to have, what shirt we're going to like, oh, what's our new camo pattern? Like, okay, are we going to have like day packs? Are we going to have like whatever? Like your MVP can be a super badass minimalist pack. Yep. That's what starts the thing. And like, okay, that tells me like there's, I'm just using Stone Glacier because this is an example, but it's like, that tells me that there's a market for minimalist backpacking gear, right? That's, that's the MVP. And if I can get a fan base, like if I can find my thousand true fans off that one product, then I can expand off that. In the same way, it was like, what I, I never wanted to be a course guy. And I was like, I, I used to hate courses because when I grew up in entrepreneurship, there's a lot of shit courses, to be honest. Sure. And so it was anti-course and I was like, and something kind of changed my thought on it. Cause I was like, there's a lot of bad information going out there. And I want to like teach people like there's, there's a lot to learn. And I learned a lot from courses. Right. And so I started there and that was kind of the MVP that's like, okay, is there something for, I don't even like saying outdoor industry, but it's like, these small town, rural America, like entrepreneurships are growing things. So like, what's my MVP? Like, okay. The course wasn't even really my MVP. It was more like that was my test group. And so I got paid to run a test group. And then the end, like what came out of that was this thing called jam sessions and jam sessions only happened because we had like a cohort in-person teaching class. And, and jam sessions were this thing where it was like, okay, we, after class, we're going to like just jam on some ideas and I'll talk about like how I would run it or how I would pivot it or like, give me a business idea. We'll riff on it. And if you don't have one, I'll, I'll give you like a couple of business ideas. And like, it'd just be like you and I riffing on a business idea. I'm like, well, here's the problems you're going to run into. Like here's the things. And when I asked everyone in the course, what they liked and like, they're like, yeah, the course was really good. And I was like crazy. 
but the jam sessions like, holy crap. And I was like, Oh, okay. Right. So like my MVP became like, okay, here's the jam sessions. And now that becomes like, okay, now there's community and we have this jam sessions. Okay. Now how do we, how do we create all the best resources in the world for this, this person who's coming into this world? Right. And then how do we make it 101, 201 and 301? And like, and so like, uh, there's still plenty of tears to go. Right. Like, and like, this is, for me, like, that's, what's fun is like building out this new thing that has, I wouldn't say infinite scalability, but very much very large scalability. Right. That's fun. That's interesting. But it also is like my secret way of working on new stuff constantly. You know, yeah. it's like me getting to like work on a bunch of different businesses and, and riff on bunch of ideas and concepts and stuff. And so like, if I've learned anything that's like, okay, yeah, building businesses is super fun, but when I get to a certain point, it gets boring for me. Um, so like, it's, it's more fun to go work on a new one, a uh, shiny new object. And I'm not saying that's like a fault or, you know, you have to like, what does it take your, your flaws and turn them into wins? Uh, you know, it's like, it's kind of like how, how I did it, but yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. Um, so it's interesting to hear uh, your perspective on it. Like, I mean, you have, sounds like you have, quite a bit of background in, in business and entrepreneurship at least. Yeah. Well, and I did go the education route. So my kind of background was I spent 15 years in the forestry industry as a forestry engineer. So I laid out cut blocks in some pretty rugged and remote areas of British Columbia. And for the last five years of my career, I was the general manager of an engineering firm. And at year kind of two and a half, we were growing at a pretty good clip. And I said to my boss, I said, I want to go back to school and do my MBA because we're going through all these growing pains and either I, we're going to dump some money into me and I'm going to figure out how to solve them. Or we're going to have to bring in a really expensive consultant to help us solve them. And he kind of had to think about it. And he said, I'm pretty sure you're going to quit as soon as you finish this course, <laughs> but we're going to do it anyways. Cause I think it's one of these. And I, I've told him several times, like I owe him a debt. I'll never be able to replay. Cause at that moment he was a better friend than a boss. And it was a two year program. It was every other Friday and Saturday all day. And then the odd kind of Sunday would be like a three-day weekend. And so he gave me every other Friday off for two years, um, paid, I think, 25% of the of the tuition. It's like a $50,000 degree. Um, and it was an executive MBA. So everybody in it had to be like director level up at some type. So like I was the youngest student in the class. Actually, so my buddy Pete was the youngest student in the class. But like everybody in there was like 45 plus and like some like legit gangsters. Um, and, and I did that for two years and it was like, I, I, I had, I got a very thorough, like traditional business education, like financial forecasting and like all Mm -hmm. the, you know, buzzwords and all that and all that kind of stuff. But it was one of my strategy professors that introduced the lean startup to it. And I started this thing called, um, the disruptive business ideas work group. And we were already meeting at like, I think class started at like 8 a.m. or something. And most of us were driving in from out of town because it was downtown Vancouver. But I started this voluntary group and we met for an hour and a half before class every Friday. And the idea was just show up with your crazy business ideas and kind of like your jam sessions. It's so fun. <laughs> let's just talk it out. You know what I mean? Like, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? And that's, and then once we were introduced to the lean startup method, and then what happened was, um, I was coming to the end of the I was coming to the end of the program and my boss put an ownership stake in the company on the table to me and the rest of the management group like he was going to sell 40% to four of us. And I'm at this crossroads where I'm graduating with this MBA. I kind of feel like I've outgrown my role a little bit. Like I want to go solve really cool business program problems. Yeah. I don't really want to work at like this 50-person consulting company. 
And my buddy was starting a behavioral economics consulting firm. And it was like, he wasn't in a behavioral economic economist, but he was really interested in it. And we started kind of toying around with the idea. And anyways, that was, it will be five years ago in August, both of us left our full-time gigs and my boss kind of had a chuckle because he's like, to the day, bro. You know what I mean? Like you couldn't even stick around for a year. You know what I mean? Like literally you're going to graduate and like give your notice like a month later. And I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you, man. I'm a dick. Um, and yeah, we went and created this company called Bethink, And then we, we just had this idea, but we applied all these, like the concepts that you've been describing, like MVP paired with customer discovery and that, Yes, there are rare situations when you're Steve Jobs and you develop an iPhone, but that is not how business works. You don't tell people what they want. You show them something and then through their behavior, if they actually buy it and participate and engage with it, you can have a conversation and figure out what they like, what they don't like. You tweak it, you pivot, you move as necessary, and then you give it back to them. You hope it's better the second time and it's just this process that you you rinse and repeat. Dude, uh, that's, I mean, just the way I've, Done thing. It was more a necessity. I remember reading the lean startup and being like, oh yeah, like uh, when it comes to books, it's always about like what order of opera, or what order you read them in. And so I yeah. remember reading uh, the lean startup and being like, oh yeah, it's kind of everything else that, you know, people are talking about. Uh, but it's like, that's everything I was doing anyway, but it wasn't yes. like at a, some genius moment of clarity. It was more like, oh yeah, I'll just bootstrap to the hell. And like, I'm just trying to sh- figure shit out. Be like, Hey guys, you like this? Huh? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so like, there's just like the necessity. Uh, and, and like, that was, you know, that's a big piece. Like the ideas lab for me is about, it's about new business ideas, but it's also about like, for me, surrounding yourself with people who think bigger, think differently yeah. and are going to accomplish your goals. Right. And like, I feel like I never had that being from, I wouldn't even say small, like small town, rural America. Right. Like and that's what I'm really trying to hone in is I don't want this to just be a hunting industry thing. I want to like, help people from all these places. Um, but like, you know, you and I could jump on and talk forestry, right? Like concepts or trends in the, in the forestry uh, industry and like how, how we could play those or how we would do it. And there's a lot to be said for like, in the same way of like, you were talking about a mentor for elk hunting. Like if I could have just been in a room and listened to my current self and you talk right through yeah. ideas, like there's so much nuance in that, that you don't even understand. And like, that's how you start thinking bigger. And I see a lot of kids that come to me uh, and I say kids a little bit redundantly. Cause it's like, there's people that are older than me, but it's like you, people come and they're like, Oh, here's my idea. I'm like, ah, so many people are just trying to replace their desk job that like they choose the wrong they just don't think big enough. Right. And like this concept of like 80, 20 is like, if you just think 20% bigger, like the outcomes are 80% greater. Right. And the idea is that like, it's not whether you're building company A or company B, it's usually about the same amount of work. Maybe there's some, some leverage there, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's about the same amount of work, whether I was building backcountry fuel or building the rich ideas lab. The difference is like backcountry fuel has a cap. Right. And the ideas lab has virtually no cap. And it's like, okay, so the, the guy who washes dishes, the bus boy and the brain surgeon both work really, really hard, but there's a cap, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Obviously the guy who's a brain surgeon is solving a much bigger problem. And so like he has a much bigger opportunity. Right. And you know, when I built my ammunition company, one of the things I ran into is like, I wanted lifestyle freedom, but I realized that I was in a commodities business. And the only way to make a 
that freedom in a commodities business was to grow extremely large, which included a lot of employees. And so like inherently by nature, you add a lot of employees, you're going to have a lot of problems, right? Like it just, you're never really going to scale out of that. And I just like, I looked at the future and said, I knew I was, I was basically copying this company or not copying, but I was like, Oh, what they're doing is crushing it. Like, and, and you know, they were on the same track. Right. And, but they were this huge manufacturing facility that was doing everything in house. And I was like, Oh, that sounds gross. I don't want to do that. And like, it was just like this aha moment that like the, the product I had chosen to build my first company around was never going to be what I was hoping to be. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, it gave me freedom, but it wasn't very much money. So if I wanted a bunch of money, I just, couldn't have the freedom side. <laughs> it was like, yeah. and you know, in retrospect, there's probably ways to go around that. Um, but, but like the ideas, like that's what I want to like help you know, average Joe, like learn is like, okay, like if you just think a little bit bigger, like your outcomes could be much, much bigger. And in the same way, it's like, uh, you know, there's just even like, if you, if you have your own business, like, as you know, like there's like tweaks, pivots, things that are working, things that aren't working. Like I, I love jamming on that stuff and, and talking not just marketing, but like, Oh man, you know, if you added this product to your lineup, like how would that look? And like, and trying to increase your LTV. So I'll sit here and, and talk to, you know, small businesses and be like, okay, well, you know, what product could we add to increase your LTV? So we can actually get, you know, some of that customer, that, that CAC, earlier in the process. Right. So how do we, how do we increase that? And like, you know, yeah, you may think that this widget is the end all be all, but if the margin on that widget is so small, like you're just really not able to do the things you want to do and change the impact of the world. Like, you know, like those are like macro level things, but it's like, no, you don't think about that when you're like, Hey, I got this idea for a new, a new pen. Like, uh, you know, like it just, that's what I want to help people like just show them what it looks like at scale, but then also give you all the resources to help you grow into what that's going to look like. You know, all the things yeah. that I wish I had hundred percent, hundred percent. All right. I want to be respectful of your time, but there's two questions I promised people I would ask you. And then I want to close up with how people can take some action on some of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah. So the first one's not a question, but it's from my buddy Ramsey. And he says, not a question, but thank uh, Cody for exposing me to Paul Medell and changing my life. Hashtag. <laughs> So he says, thank you. Oh, dude, that was, uh, that was amazing. Like there's one podcast I've done like three with Paul, but yeah, there's always that one podcast. that just like goes crazy. And that there's one that I don't know. I've, the, the amount of downloads is ridiculous at this point. Um, but Paul's energy when he talks about elk hunting is like, is like feverish. Like it just, like you catch, you catch it, right. You like just get yeah. excited about elk hunting when you listen to that podcast. So, uh, and up next, my buddy wants us to riff on sleep systems a little bit. And he gave me some clarification and I just got to find the message. Here we go. Okay. He commented the question for sleep system, sleep systems. <clears throat> I know it's a common question and there's lots of other info. Um, but could you please talk about proper size sleeping bags I'd like to know which high-end ones we prefer and then maybe some difference on sleeping mats. Okay, well, we can't talk about sleeping systems all day. So maybe a more pointed question would be with where you're at right now, what's your sleep system of choice? <laughs> okay, so this is going to be a fun one. and This is going to be like counterintuitive. <laughs> so it's, I slept like this little Mexican blankie thing uh, in the back of my truck, more nights than I slept in a sleeping bag. Uh, was it 
last year, you know, the year before. And I was, my wife and I were laughing about it. Cause it's like this little, she got these for her dad's birthday or something. And, and so there's one in my truck and I would just like, always just throw that over. Cause it was a cot, but all this is to say that like people overthink this. And one of the things that's counterintuitive that I would say I do is like when it comes to sleep systems, rarely do I take a tent in September almost never have one. Um, sometimes I bring a sleeping pad. Those are convenient. Uh, but for the most part, like when you're talking about, I'm doing like a little two, three mile riff out. Um, like generally speaking, I have my sleeping bag and a pad. That's it. Unless it's going to rain. Like I really don't use a tent very often. Uh, okay. I just sleep on the ground. And so I took one of my Patreons on this hunt in New Mexico. And I think we, I took like a, my sky alt, which is like a, uh, you know, uh, trekking pole types, you know, just shelter, uh, that I slept under one nice rainstorm. But other than that, there was like a number of nights where it was like sleeping bag and a pad. And generally speaking, it was like, we'd find an elk. And I'm thinking of one night in particular, like we found this elk and they were bugling in this little hole below us. And we just basically found two deer beds and like carved it out and like kicked it out. And he was like, yeah, I would have never thought to do this. I was like, yeah, like tents are overrated. We're going to be here. Like we found this bull at like 11 o'clock at night. Like we'll probably have to get up, you know, three in the morning. Like it's going to be a nap. Essentially. I look at like nighttime almost as like a nap, you know, it's like, okay, okay you know, like I got to be back on this bull and I want to be up two hours before daylight so I can know if he's moving or not. And like that particular night we slept on those bulls that were, you know, 500 yards away. They were screaming all night and I was waking up kind of checking on them. And I'm like, I woke up, I don't know, but two hours, maybe an hour and a half before daylight. And I was like, I didn't hear him. And I like, so I get up and like, I listen, it was super faint. I was like, Hey, they're moving. We got to move. And so I was like, this is long before they were ever up, but I'm like, I got to stay on these elk. So they started moving back to where they're, you know, bedding area far before daylight. So that's where I'm like tents overrated, like sleeping bags, sometimes a pad, sometimes not. Uh, and I'm like, that's just kind of how I roll. And like that happens a lot more than not in September anyway, because it's September. It's nice. Uh, so I run a stone glacier sleeping bag. I, I've been using that one for about three years. I had a big Agnes. Um, I don't put a whole lot of value in which bag I use unless it's like November, October hunts where it's like yeah. super cold. Uh, for the most part. Yeah. I don't, I don't think about it a ton, but uh, like even to say, so I have three different pads. I think the pad I used last year, the most was one off Amazon for like $30 uh, yeah. And I never put a ground pad and I got one hole all season and that was just straight pad on dirt, cactus, whatever. Um, and I did get one hole in it and I ended up patching it and it still works great, but that thing is like ridiculously light. Uh, so like there's always this like, okay, light versus durability. 100%. Um, and so like I was for what it is, they're $30, man. Like I can run those, you know, a couple a year and be fine. And they're just ridiculously light. I forget the name of it, but it's, you know, it's got like 5,000 stars on Amazon or something. So like, I, I just don't overthink it. You know, like to me, I'm there, I'm there to kill elk and you know, everything else is a side thought. So I don't know if that, I don't know if that helps or hurts or like, you're like, that's the wrong answer, but <laughs> No, man. I I love it. I definitely am. I, I obsess over gear. It's wild, man. Um, so I love the idea that, you know, which is, which is funny. Cause like, uh, like, I think I just, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't have gear. Like I just always like, it was never a priority. Cause like, yeah. I guess when you grow up your entire life doing it, like you just slowly accumulate stuff and there's never a point in your life where you're like, I'm going uh, buying all new stuff for the sport. So I respect that people who come into it are like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to like 
go get the thing. And I'm going to be doing this for 20 years. So I'll buy the nice thing. The person who starts at age two or five is like, okay, I've just always had a thing and you're always replacing one or two things. And I've gotten a much nicer gear at this point than I did for a lot of years. But I would say in my twenties, like I would never have even fathomed spending money on gear. It was always like gas money and tags. Like that's all I really cared about. And those are just different. Like when you come into it, like as a successful professional or adult, you're like, Oh, I have some money. I should buy nice things. I I think that's completely fair and reasonable. I just never was at that point. It was always just like, Oh, I should replace this. It's yeah. I also think there's a high degree of anxiety and the unknown. And then as human beings, we tend to focus in, in those instances, we focus on the things we can control. 100%, because just it back gives us a sense of confidence. So if I'm not a guy who spent a lot of nights in the backcountry, I am definitely going to spend a shitload of time like online comparison shopping because right. sleeping bags because I I can own this decision. I can feel right. in control of it and it will right. give me a sense of of peace that no matter what happens, at least I've got the right, which is kind of like an empty decision because it's not really going to impact you. Like I, I, I say it all the time about solo hunting. Like people are always wondered, you know, they give a shit about what boots or what backpack they're going to wear. And it's like, it's your mind that's going to send you home, my friend. Oh, it's not 100%. your boots. 100%. And the only way you can build up that mental toughness in order to get past day three or four, because your mind is not your best friend out there. Your mind is going to mm-hmm. screw you. It is going to come up with all these beautifully rational ideas about why you need to leave because X, Y, and Z need your, yeah, right. And then you're going to get home a week later and be like, no, I'm just a bitch. I just (laughs) pussed out. And then you're going to live with that for a year until you go back. And it happens to all of us. The only reason I know that is because I did it. And then I was like, I don't ever want to feel like that again. And then you just go back out and then you don't come back in. And then you go back out a little longer and you don't come back in. And then you like... But yeah, I, which, I, which is I agree. Cause like, I think that's where I'm at the point with like using less, you know, become, maybe I'm a little bit minimalist, but like, I, I remember uh, a certain mental toughness event where I was in Idaho and it rained for 10 days straight. And like, Ugh. I just bought a new pair of sweet under armor boots and I was like, Oh yeah, I got good boots. You know, uh, I was 19 or 20 at the time. Solo Idaho, 10 days of rain. And like, I was sleeping in my truck. So anybody's like lived in the backseat of their truck knows like, it's not an ideal place to be. Uh, and like, it's just, everything's wet. It's nasty. Why on this particular trip, I broke out my back window with the floor over there. So it was extra fun. Uh, And so I put these brand new boots next to the fire to dry them out one day and like torched them. And so so then it was like extra bad. And you know, like I, I did bitch out on that hunt. I think it was like day eight or something. And I was like, this is dumb. I went home and I, I regretted that decision heavily for the next 11 months, you know? And then, and then it became like, okay, like you get some nice gear and you go through that and you're like, it doesn't really change who I am as like whatever. And I, I may be at the point where I'm like, I literally, when I go through my pack, I'm like, will I die without this? probably not throw it out. You know, like, will I die without this? And like, I don't, I don't want to say it's like a toughness test, but it's like, to me, it's like, I just, that's where I'm at with gear. And I do think that as a huge piece of like, just growing up doing this without it. So like, I already know that I can do it. If there's something in my pack that I don't use for a year, it goes out. Like, I'm just like, why would I need that? I haven't used it in a year or two. And it's, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a point where like you, you come across something like, man, I really wish I had that one thing I took out and that's happened, you know, but 
um, I think the longer you go, the more confident you get, the more confident you get. You're like, okay, I, I know what I need and what I don't need. Um, and I don't need that crutch of knowing that I have the nicest gear. Like in, in some ways I'm like, oh yeah, I survived off a Mexican blanket in the back of my truck for 30 days. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right, man, let's, let's close up. Let everybody know. I'll put links and everything in the show notes, but maybe if some of this stuff has been engaging to people and they're getting kind of motivated and want to take some action, let people know how they can get into kind of touch and what's, what's going on in your world. Yeah. So if you guys are really interested in elk hunting stuff, um, we have a Patreon page that's like dedicated to everything else. So it's got uh Wapiti Wednesday podcast. We've been in, like, there's a couple hundred episodes on elk specifically. Uh, I have an email series when you sign up, we can, it's basically like my, how to go from 101 to 201 course. Uh, and there's like a 10 video series too, of like the 10 principles that, you know, you should master. Uh, so all of that stuff, if you're into the entrepreneur side, go check out richideaslab.com with the ideas lab. It's more than just like the jam sessions. There's actually a couple courses in there. So if you want to make an extra 10 grand, there's like a how to side hustle 10 K. Uh, there's another course, uh, that I worked really, really hard on, uh, called uh, how to make time and money. And it's like all the principles that I learned in building my first three companies. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's that. And, yeah. And it's going to be a lot more. It's going to be a lot really cool. So um, we'll have to have you on as a guest and we'll riff on some business ideas in the ideas lab. So be any, any time, man, it would be, it would be a pleasure and an honor. Um, that was great, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. That was better than I even hoped for. <laughs> good. Good. Glad it worked out. All right, man. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. All right, guys, there you go. Cody rich, the rich outdoors, rich ideas lab, et cetera. That was awesome. If you guys aren't motivated or a little bit inspired to go kick some ass after that, I don't know if there's anything else I can do to help you. So if you could in return engage with the platform in any way, shape or form, it would be greatly appreciated. Like, comment, share, subscribe. If you want some merch, mindfulhunter.com slash shop. Any of your support is and always will be greatly appreciated. And as always, thanks for tuning in.